number 109. Brother Jonathan asked that we mark that, and we're certainly happy to do that, and we'll use that later in the service this morning. As I stand before you today, as is often the case, certainly we're so thankful for our membership at Pippin and for the visitors who today have come our way. We want you to know you're our honored guest. We would invite you, please, to consider us and come back at any opportunity that you may have to come and be with us here at the Pippin Church of Christ and our services. As you give thought to our congregation, we're blessed with an eldership, with deacons. We also have a host of classes for all ages. And in addition, we strive above all things to carry out the duties of the Lord's church in the way the New Testament has, has informed us and instructed us that we must do. It is the case today, as I stand before you, that again we continue a series of lessons giving thought to the words spoken by our Savior while He Himself was being crucified. I believe as each of us have reflected upon that under such duress, under such agony, under such difficult circumstances, many things might cross one's mind about one's own life. But we have been rather impressed, it seems to me, to think about Jesus and the words that He spoke. These introductory remarks bring us to appreciate yet again the situation that occurred in the year 30 A.D. in the spring of that year. It was, of, uh, among many other ways, a particular year spoken of by Daniel in the Old Testament. It was a particular monumental event prophesied in Psalm 22 that there would be a monumental death, the one that would allow the human family to be saved. As our Savior went to the cross in the spring of that year, He knew all along over the past three years or so in His public ministry, He told His apostles that this was going to happen. He forewarned them about the magnitude of it. They didn't fully believe it. They often had questions and doubts. But yet the moment had come. They had now witnessed their master, their leader, their one who had instructed and taught them. Nailed to a cross and the bottom statements on that slide remind us briefly of what we have seen so far. In the first lesson of this series, we notice Jesus spoke a word of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23, 34. Here was an incredible statement about the very ones who had been involved in the Lord's crucifixion, and yet enough mercy and love on His part to desire that they be forgiven. Last week, we looked at the lesson from Luke 23, 43, in which Jesus there said, to that thief on the cross, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. We learned in that lesson the grandeur of that Hadean realm and the nature of what happens when we die. Today, as we come to statement number three, what else did Jesus have to say while on the cross? As you give thought to these statements of our Savior on the cross, our pictures that we've looked at in the past weeks, it wouldn't do us harm to reflect on them again. In the midst of circumstances in which that occurred not too many moments before some of these statements, we notice Jesus Himself, of course, was nailed to a cross in addition. As the Lord endured those features, as all the pain and all the agony and all the humiliation and insult that came with it, these statements that Jesus has made, the one about forgiveness and the one about paradise, was made by a man perhaps in a condition much like that. Almost unfathomable in some ways, isn't it? To appreciate that though he himself was under such duress, he had enough consideration for others to wish them forgiven while they had done that to him. And he had enough consideration to speak about paradise while he was in that condition. 
Today, as we come to his third statement, it still was, of course, sometime after he had been put on that cross that we develop a circumstance like this one. In Isaiah 53, 11, the Scriptures 750 years roughly previous to this had foretold that He would bear their iniquities. As our Savior was crucified, He bore the iniquities of those on that occasion who had done it, just as surely as He bore your iniquities and mine on that occasion. As He did that, you'll quickly observe that the Lord's comments on the cross were very different than what many might have expected. After all, wouldn't it maybe be natural for a man to want relief from the pain? Wouldn't it be natural to wish deliverance from the moment of the horror and the matter of this crucifixion? But yet the two statements so far that Jesus has made have been in consideration of those, again, statement of their forgiveness, and also the consideration about paradise, a word of comfort to the thief on one of his sides. So far, all these statements, the Lord hasn't said a word about Himself. He not once has railed upon or blasphemed others for doing this to Him. Not once has He stated an element of resentment and revenge. Not once. As we come to statement number three today, this pattern is going to continue. He again will have no words of revenge, no words of matter for horror or hatred toward those about Him. You'll notice about the middle of that slide, we come now to realize some of the events in particular of the crucifixion. As our Savior was crucified on that cross, we learn from other gospel accounts that there were individuals who reviled Jesus and they wagged their tongues at Him, they passed by in front of Him and almost disrespectingly insult Him. In the midst of all of that, there were four women who were standing there watching it. These four women, of course, played a great role in the life of Jesus. And I'd invite you to notice who they were. One of them was the Lord's mother, Mary. This woman, can you imagine what raced through her mind as she stood there and watched her son being nailed to the cross and watched what he was enduring while there on the cross? As you and I think about the love we have for our children, can you imagine... Can you even imagine watching someone else drive nails through their little hands and feet? Can you imagine watching someone disrespect them and insult them and have no consideration for the kind of human value that they are? Mary had stood there and watched this. Not only that, Mary's sister was also there, as you can well tell. Other gospel accounts inform us apparently her name was Salome. As she too watched this, you can imagine the closeness she must have felt to Jesus, and yet she too had just witnessed Him be crucified, and now as He hanged on that cross. Beyond that, there was another lady named Mary. She, we are told, was the wife of Clopas. And finally, there was Mary Magdalene. Four women standing there, listening and watching with care all that was transpiring. You'll notice as the Lord took observation of those individuals, He now turned His attention in particular and made a statement. The text that Brother Jeremy read for us earlier said that in John 19, 26, When Jesus therefore saw His mother, the Lord while on the cross, surrounded by all the horror and the insult and the blasphemy and the pain, surrounded by the difficulties of the circumstance, he nonetheless had the power of vision. 
the blood that was perhaps streaming down from the crown on his head, the crown of thorns that is, that didn't occlude his vision enough but what he saw his mother. He saw Mary. And you'll notice verse 26 says, Woman, behold thy son. Jesus had a word for Mary, four little words in fact. He said, Woman, behold thy son. And you'll notice that as he made observation and statement of that, he had done so in light of John 19, verse number 26. Because Jesus not only saw Mary, he also saw the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. I've tried to bring to your attention some of those thoughts at the top of that slide. I'd invite you to notice somewhat amazingly. In the Greek text, the way in which that initial statement is presented, it is with a degree of exclamation. May I submit to you that here was a man who had lost a great deal of blood, a man who was having difficulty breathing, a man who had endured so very much, and yet he found enough vigor within him, enough power of persuasion within him to speak with an exclamation in his voice. This was important. May you and I never overlook the profound character of these four little words that the Lord had uttered. Woman, behold thy son. There have been those who have suspected that maybe in that word woman, after all he did not say mother, that some have perhaps accused Jesus of being disrespectful to Mary. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, in the Greek text, in the original Greek language, that Koine Greek in which we appreciate the New Testament presentation, often that word woman is used not in a disrespectful way, but in a very tender, respectful way. It would certainly appear as that is the means in which our Savior addressed His mother. Woman, behold thy son. As the Lord made that reference, He had in mind that man who was standing nearby to Mary that disciple whom he loved. The gospel according to John was written by the apostle John and rather than identify himself by name, he frequently referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Here John referred to himself in that way. You'll notice that Jesus then in this statement makes note of the fact that it was to be John that would proceed to care for his own mother, that is Jesus' own mother. Because notice the next verse with me, if you would. Then saith he to the disciple. So immediately following his addressing of Mary, he now addresses John, that disciple whom he loved. And in verse 27 it says, Behold thy mother. Three words this time. And again it was stated with exclamation. Again it was stated with great significance and importance. If you're reading in a King James translation, you might recognize exclamation marks following the statement both in that verse and in the previous. Behold thy mother. That verse 27 closes then with these interesting statements. And from that hour, that disciple took her unto his own home. If you notice near the bottom of this slide, we then appreciate that our Lord, even while Himself on the cross even while himself under such great duress, paying the price for every human sin ever committed, he nonetheless did not forget the needfulness of caring for his own mother in the later years of her life. He knew he himself would not be upon earth to carry out that task, to take care of that duty, and thus he sought this opportunity 
to make sure that it was taken care of by another. Woman, behold thy son, and to John, behold thy mother. You and I aren't told too much about Joseph. You remember that that was the husband of Mary, Jesus' stepfather, if you please, his foster father, perhaps is a better term. But we notice that our Savior himself is such that Joseph, the last mention of him you and I find in the Scriptures in which we know that he was alive, was in Luke chapter 2. On that occasion, the Lord at the tender age of 12, you may recall that his parents had taken him to celebrate the Passover, and we know that Joseph, of course, was living at that point. Following that, the references to Joseph, it is not certain that he was still living. It may well be that Joseph had passed away by the time the events of the crucifixion took place. And if so, what then might we say about Mary being cared for in the later years and in the subsequent years of her life? After all, we do know Jesus had brothers and sisters. Did they have no responsibility in this? In Matthew 13, verses 56 and following, we find a statement there that Jesus had four physical brothers, half-brothers if you will. But in John 7, verse number 5, this interesting statement is found. They did not believe in Jesus. They were unbelievers. It seems that Jesus did not want to bequeath the care of His mother to those that were not believers. He thought it wiser. He thought it better. He thought it more appropriate that her care be bequeathed unto John, one of those apostles who did believe in Him, and one who, of course, was known as the apostle of love. Perhaps in fairness, you can see later on in that same slide. Isn't it again an impressive thing to consider that Jesus, while in this condition, had enough understanding of the responsibility of caring for His mother that He took care of it while He was on the cross. May I submit to you, in perhaps light of that, that casts a great spotlight, doesn't it, on the beauty, on the blessing on the responsibility, and on all the wonderful opportunities that come with family. Let's devote the remainder of our lesson today then in building on these thoughts that Jesus has uttered and use them to impress upon our minds yet again the special opportunity and blessing that comes with a family. And by that I mean a physical family, quite frankly. You'll notice on this occasion, Jesus, as He gave the care of His mother into John, and of course gave to John the care of His own mother. You'll notice verse 27 closes by saying, From that hour. John did not wait till the following week. He didn't wait till the following year. From that time forward, she found all the necessities and needs of life in the household of John. When you and I think about family... Isn't it still a somewhat sweet appreciation that God has organized and arranged life in such a way that family is a monumental part in it? Everyone from the time of those boys, Cain and Abel forward, every person's been born into a family. We understand that there's a father and a mother. We understand perhaps siblings and other as well, such as grandparents and aunts and uncles. The Bible has much to say, doesn't it, about families. In fact, so significant is it that we often find a number of genealogical records about families. In fact, you can trace individuals, the Old Testament especially, 
often through many generations of individuals. Does that not itself indicate families are vital? They're important. Sometimes you and I seemingly live in an era when families aren't as important, aren't as close-knit, aren't looked upon as respectfully as they once were. I hope today we could be reminded, at least as a part of this lesson, that family does have an important place to have in, in our thinking, and we should, of course, greatly respect what, is the, what the Bible says about it. Among the things that we find in the Bible is the profound influence that you and I can have on our family, and what's more, the profound influence that our family can have on us. We noted a bit about that in the Bible study class this morning. Even as it related to priests and even to the high priest and what was to be commanded by God relative to their choice of a maid and the kind of family that they would have. I'd invite you to think with me for the next few moments about that same matter applied to us especially. Near the bottom of that slide, you'll notice something about the responsibility that comes to each of us. I realize that I stand before individuals, some of whom are male, some of whom are female, some of whom are fathers, some of whom are husbands, some of whom are wives and mothers, and some are yet different circumstances in life. But suffice it to say, each of us have been given responsibility and duty, and may we quickly take note of some of them. I know that many of us are parents. I hope that none of us in that position and role will ever take even granted for a moment the influence we're able to have. You may recall that David in 1 Chronicles 29 prayed especially for Solomon in light of the future efforts and labors of his life. And not only that, we remember that Abraham in Genesis 18, 20 and 21 and 22, he led and directed his household well. Parents, you and I have much to influence relative to the eternal nature of where our children are going to be. We have much to say about the kind of life they'll lead here. We have much to influence them in terms of what they'll appreciate as significant and important. May I ask that you think with me about verses perhaps like these. We know that we are to provide for them physically. None of us would ever allow our children to go hungry or to starve or to be without the proper clothing. We'd never allow them to be in positions like that. We know how important it is to provide for them, just like Hannah did Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We know how important it is to direct and provide for them relative to the food that they need to survive. No one would question that. But isn't it true that our provision for them spiritually is monumentally more significant. Because after all, they're only in the flesh for a while. They're going to live forever. Where will they spend eternity? By your instruction and mine, will we be able to bequeath to them, perhaps in our dying moments, something as significant as Jesus did? He wanted her cared for physically. Maybe you and I think about some that we've known who have reached those elderly stages in life and one of the last words they were able to share to their children, son, live a good life. Daughter, please live a faithful life for nothing is more important than that. Throughout the years, maybe you and I have known individuals such as I myself have known 
a, a gentleman who himself was an elder in the Lord's church. He'd raised two daughters. They themselves were very good professional ladies. They had gone to school, gone to college, gone to graduate school. They were very skilled, professional individuals. But you know, the dad reminded me on one occasion still, the most special thing he wanted for those daughters was to marry a faithful man and to live a good life. He was proud of them for their professional achievements, proud of them for a degree of educational attainments, but still the one thing for which he wanted more than anything else was that they would continue to live a faithful life and if a man should come their way, that the man would be a faithful Christian man. That's a, a fairly noble request, a noble thought, wasn't it? Have you and I prayed for our children in that way? That they, when the time comes, will meet a faithful man or woman, as the case may be, and that they will be able to proceed on a life of faithfulness so that some of these verses could be descriptive of them? Titus 2.4 Wives, speaking specifically there to, to those that are mothers, love your children, love your husbands. They are to be ladies who could appreciate the fact that they, perhaps more so than any others, on a day-to-day -day basis can direct the ongoing matters in that home. Love your husbands and love your children. You'll notice beyond that, verses like Ephesians 6 verse 4, To fathers, bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. No better place that we could have them on a Sunday morning than Bible class. May we never lose excitement for what that means. May we never allow it to become a time of drudgery, a time less than ideal and exciting. But may we encourage them that those Bible stories they're learning now and those truths, even as they get to older classes, those will last for a lifetime for them. Proverbs 22.6 says, Bring up a child. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. May you and I place our trust and confidence in verses like that one. You'll notice even beyond these statements of responsibility, we come to additional statements. To ladies. To those, of course, who occupy a position in the family as well, a wife, a mother. One of the first things that the Scriptures are so quick to remind those in that situation, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord. That phrase is borrowed not only in Ephesians 5 verses 21 and 22, but also in Colossians 3 verses 18 to 21. When you think about the issue of what takes place in the family, We've spoken a bit about parents. We've spoken a bit about the special duties attaching to both husbands and wives. I would like to address children for a moment if I might. Using again the Word of God as our guide. It's not our interest to say anything other than what the Bible itself testifies. Young people, the Bible says to honor your father and your mother. Don't disrespect them. Don't make fun of them. Don't choose to live in such a way to bring reproach upon all they've tried to instill within you. Love them. Honor them. That statement, in fact, it was in one of the Ten Commandments, wasn't it? The fifth of the Ten Commandments. Those in Israel were to realize, honor your father and your mother. And later, Paul quoted that verbatim in Ephesians 6, verses 1 to 3. As he did so, he attached it in this way. This is the first commandment with promise. 
It will make your life upon earth a far sweeter one than otherwise it would be. And if your parents are godly and righteous, it will forever impress upon you that which is most important. That verse is only one of several others. Notice some of these with me if you would. You'll notice the passages relating to children. In Proverbs 1 verse 8, the statement is made that one should recognize the law of thy father and the law of thy mother. Parents do have rules, youngsters, but it's for your good. It's not rules just to make your life unhappy. It's not rules just to make you perhaps unpopular. It's not rules to cause to be less the fame you might have among others. Your parents have those rules because they love you. And they care for you. And they want you to understand that some things are not wise. They're not appropriate. And despite the fact that others may do them, it's not in your eternal best interest. As you grow older, you'll understand that. You'll come to understand even better the consideration your parents had for you. As those kind of statements are motivated in that way, aren't all these verses somewhat reminiscent of the dignity that accords to life? Let me say that again in slightly different language. There is a dignity that comes with being a human being. You and I are not animals. You and I are not those that are lesser in God's creation. We are dignified beings made in the image and likeness of God. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. And in that arena, notice again, the Lord did not want His mother suffering in the later years of her life. He didn't want her to find herself bereft of the needs of the human family. He thus took the opportunity to provide for her by bequeathing it to John. And of course, John took that responsibility seriously, and from that hour forward, he cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus. Maybe in that, you and I can see that we have pretend, or we have come to live in an age when quite often those that reach elderly years are looked upon in a matter of disrespect. They're looked upon as expendable. They're looked upon as less than typical human value. In fact, there are countries in Europe who have begun to rather interestingly consider legislation regarding euthanasia, putting our elderly people to death because they can't serve society any longer. They cannot operate productively. Really? To put our elderly people to death? May it never be so here. We understand that the Word of God places a marvelous character and dignity to life, and even in, our el in elderly years, we should strive to love our parents, to strive to see they're taken care of. I know that I stand before many whose parents have reached an age in which special care is needful. And praise be unto God that we've witnessed so many in our community and even here at the congregation who have taken it as a great priority to provide that. At the bottom of this slide, you'll notice that the statements of Jesus show us here that even the Lord lived in a day and in a time when that wasn't automatic. You Maybe you've already thought about that scene in Mark chapter 7. You recall it with me well in which there the Lord directly confronted some Pharisees. Now they themselves had called into question the fact Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands. They did what ought not to be done. They transgressed the commandment of God. 
in the verses that follow, Jesus, though, asked a great question of them. He said, why do you also transgress the command of God? And you can almost imagine their mouth drop open in disbelief. Jesus, you're accusing us of violating God's command? The Lord was. What did He have in mind? He then related this to them. It had to do with their care of their parents. You see, the Jews of that age and that era, apparently some of them were quick to say, it is Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N. And the underlying meaning behind that went like this. You see, in that age and time, if a particular Jew made an oath or profession to God of determining or providing to God certain elements of what he himself physically had, such as his money, his property, and otherwise, then he could use this word korban, which literally means gift. And he could say, it is a gift, and so dad and mom, I cannot give it to you. I've promised it to God. I've already determined and dictated it belongs to him, and I cannot provide for you. The Lord said they were transgressing God's command in such activities as that. It's not to say they were not to be faithful to what they promised to God, but it was to appreciate the fact they were taking this much too loosely. They would, in fact, even years ahead of time, set aside things, even though at that time their parents may have needed it. They would already say, It's Corbin, I can't give it to you even now. And in so doing... They were not taking care of their parents in the way that they could. They were forsaking what ought to have been the case. It's Corbin. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, maybe all of that reminds us, doesn't it, that we should appreciate even in 1 Timothy, in chapter number 5 of that book, statements are made that remind us of the duty that comes our way relative even to our parents, caring for them, honoring them, loving them. There were widows indeed. Paul said the church ought to appreciate the needfulness of caring for them. But he was quick to say that if a widow had family who could take care of her, it was their responsibility first. 1 Timothy 5 verse 4. You'll notice that those children of that woman, they should take care of her if they can. They should provide for her, for didn't she provide for them when they were young? When you and I think about it from that perspective, isn't it somewhat honorable to be blessed to arrive at old age? There are those individuals who, of course, die young due to accidents, due to disease, due to other things. If God looks favorably upon you and me that we arrive at old age, I would invite you to look at verses like Psalm 92.14 as well as Psalm 71.9 that highlight for us how sweet it is and how honorable it is to have that gray hair and to have those years of life and wisdom at our disposal. God even says you and I can be productive when we arrive at old age, and Jesus wanted to make sure His mother physically was cared for in a way that that productivity could happen. May you and I in wisdom appreciate those teachings as well as we think about our own families. We as parents care for our children and we expect that at some point in life, if that circumstance arrives, they will be there to help care for us. Today, have you tended to the greatest need of all, that is the spiritual characteristics of your own soul? And are you teaching your children, instructing them in that same way? 
if you realize that things are amiss in your life. It may be that you at one time were a faithful member of the body of Christ and you were a fine example of Christianity to your children, your neighbors, your fellow employees and others. But that can't be said any longer. You know yourself. In your finer moments, you certainly would even admit it, that you aren't living as you should. If you've lived in a way that's brought reproach upon the church, upon your family, upon the name you've been given, upon what you ought to stand for, why not come back today to your first love? Why not, in fact, make things right with the Lord who loves you? If you have never become a Christian, there'll never be a better day than this one, the 10th day of November, 2013. The plan of salvation is you need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, commanded in John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, commanded in Luke 13, 3. You must confess in a verbal way your belief in Jesus as a Son of God, commanded in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. You must be baptized for the remission of your sins, commanded in Acts 2, 38 and Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. If today that aspect in your life is amiss. Why not make it right? Jesus is the one with the power to do it, but you must make the choice to do it yourself. Come down this aisle. Brother Jonathan has chosen the hymn of encouragement, and at this moment, if we could be of help to you in your initial response to the gospel, why not realize you're being called by that gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. And in that call, don't you want to answer? If you have become a Christian but need to be rededicated to that life in Jesus, today, maybe you want to set a better example for your children. Maybe you want to be more noteworthy in terms of instructing them in the proper way. Why not today? Why not now? While together we stand and while we sing.